This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, it's Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. Our guest for the day is no stranger to the program. He always brings a great perspective to one of our most popular topics, snakes. Terry Vandeventer is a passionate about Mississippi snakes, and he'll join us to talk about and answer your snake questions. Also, Dr. Major is here ready for pet questions. And if you have some, we always like to hear about your recent brushes with wildlife and nature. Join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. A reminder that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Dr. Major. We're going to start with some pet emails. How are you doing this morning? Doing fine. Thank you. Everything's good. All right. Uh, This first one says, I'm bottle feeding a three-week-old orphan puppy. Is it all right to add some rice or oatmeal baby cereal to the milk? Well, that's a great, great question, but I think I'd stick with the milk replacer. Uh, there are all different kind of uh, ways that people have raised puppies, but uh, the milk replacer, this three-week-old puppy, will be able to start taking some more solid food soon, but I don't know that I would add it to the milk. Uh, all right. People may have, may have done this in different ways, but uh, I'd like to stay on the milk and then gradually uh, maybe a soup, if you will, of puppy food. Uh, certainly will will be good uh, in short order, somewhere between three and four weeks of age. All right. The same email asks, can a puppy contract heartworms if their mother has them? Uh, the question straight across the board there would be no. Uh, heartworms are going to be spread. If you're talking about heartworms, heartworms can be only be spread by a mosquito and they cannot be transferred in utero or otherwise uh, to the puppy. Okay. Um, this next one, it says, started moving my large plants inside, and my elderly cat is using them as litter boxes. <laughs> Any thoughts on that one? Uh, that's a perfect perfect scenario for the crime, yeah. Uh, the cat wants that, uh, what should I say, dirt uh, that's in the uh, and fertilized dirt around the plants. And they can be quite destructive on some of these plants that uh, come in uh, simply by, uh, you know, moving the soil around the roots. My suggestion would be to protect the plants in the pot by maybe rocks uh, around the plant, you know, just uh, mm-hmm. river rocks or whatever you have that might uh, encircle that. And certainly that would discourage the cat, I believe, from using that as a litter box. Um, and I would say, too, make sure that you keep the litter box clean, because I know that my cat starts acting a little squirrely uh, when when it's not clean. And I, I, it's amazing to me how if I let it go too long, as soon as I clean it, he's he's there and saying I can hear him saying thank you for cleaning up my litter box so I can use it properly. I'm sure, I'm sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, quite, quite frankly, the uh, the uh, cats, a lot of cats would prefer either sand or soil. Uh, for their litter, which uh, is not really good for in-the-house litter box. 
And there's some uh, cats that are very fastidious about which litters they like. You might change out of necessity and find that the cat hates that particular litter. So they get used to one or they show preference for one litter. But uh, soil and sand are pretty high on their list as far as what they would like. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I think cats, you know, cover up their uh, stuff in the litter box there. And so my cat's constantly, you know, pawing and, and cleaning it up to his uh, the way he likes it. But the other thing is, if I'm sort of eating lunch or whatever at my computer desk, he'll hop up there and then he starts that same paw action like he's trying to cover up my food. So I'm not sure if that's uh, his comment on my cooking ability or what. <laughs> We'll have to leave that open. I'm not sure. You'll have to do a study, a study on that. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. okay, here's another one. When our six-month-old Australian shepherd puppy wants to play, she grabs her toy and wraps her front paws around our ankles, holding on tightly. We're afraid she'll trip us. Could we stop this behavior using positive training techniques? Well, so according to what she's, they're saying, the puppy gets a toy and then wraps her front legs, I guess, around them, mm-hmm. around the foot. Uh, <clears throat> you're going to have to try to distract this puppy uh, from this. Uh, certainly, uh, we don't want you uh, falling and breaking a hip or your head or whatever. Um, some of these pets can actually uh, cause some damage like that. I would suggest two things. One, Another toy, uh, maybe throw another toy down, uh, keep one in your pocket or whatever. Uh, throw another toy down and encourage the dog to play with that. The other would be the old water bottle, squirt bottle. Uh, and when the puppy grabs your leg, uh, just give it a blast of water from a squirt bottle. That just helps in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, could this be a sign of just the puppy wants to play and is trying to get someone's attention? I suspect so. Uh, it might it might do the same thing with another with a dog, you know, another pet, uh, and I suspect that's what's going on. But I haven't seen that as being a very constant problem with pets or puppies. But in this case, it could be dangerous if it tripped you. Yeah, I like your suggestion too of having the other toy available. So because I'm sure if he, they were to chunk it down the hallway or whatever, I'm, I'm nine times out of ten, I think the puppy would choose to chase after the the other toy. Right, especially if it's a toy like. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, one other one here. It says I adopted a puppy who's now seven month seven months old. He weighs about twenty two pounds and looks a lot like a schnauzer. Is this a normal weight for a schnauzer at this age? I'm just trying to see how big he'll be when he's fully grown. And they said seven months old? Is yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, sure. There's a wide variation in, in schnauzers, and, of course, there's a standard schnauzer and there's a giant schnauzer. So I suspect that the schnauzers that we see, uh, adult uh, regular-type schnauzer, probably in the 20 to 28-pound range. Anything over that, they're going to be probably obese, or they could be mixed with some other uh, <coughs> some other breed. But I, I'm not sure exactly what the standard says, but I suspect the upper limit would be 25 to 28 in the standards. Uh, as a follow-up, um, are there ways for us as pet owners to kind of guess or estimate, or how do we know if our pets are overweight other than just actually weighing them? Great question. Uh, usually you can feel. That's the best best and You can look, but... Uh, you should be able to feel the top of the backbone when you run your hand 
down the pet's back. If you can't find that backbone without pressing, probably we're overweight. The other thing, you should be able to feel the ribs. You don't need to stick your fingers in between them if it's that skinny or loss of condition. But you should be able to feel them. But uh, there's there's all kind of guys. I think you can go online and see the differences. And uh, there are people that will grade uh, based on uh, body confirmation. And I would suspect that, in my opinion, sometimes the ones that say it's perfect just like it people, uh, maybe it's because I'm not that thin, but sometimes they tend toward their real thin pets as being an ideal weight. But there is an ideal weight for your pet, and every one is different. But you should. That's a good thing to think of, though, be able to feel the top of the backbone and feel some ribs without having to poke too hard. All right. Uh, let's wrap up this first part of the show with a call from Roger in Florence. Go ahead, Roger. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Morning. What you do. Morning, Roger. You, uh, I want to know what your opinion is, Doctor Page, on these devices which you can buy, and they're not very expensive, which put out some sort of high frequency, undetectable by humans, and supposedly deters not only rodents. That's the main question. But supposedly will will make uh, roaches and other things not want to be around it. But I'm particularly concerned with uh, with uh, with mice and rats. Right. Gosh, uh, Terry may be able to help us with this one, but uh, I suspect that these things have been advertised forever, and and people that I've asked do they work, and they usually say no. Uh, and that may be a blanket statement uh, that that it's wrong. I'm just saying my observations have been that. One of the things that really fascinates me, uh, you can go online and look at it, is if you've got a lot of mice, is the bucket uh, mousetrap. It has a little ladder and a place where you put food and it flips the mice into the bucket uh, and they can't jump out. But that's that's a different story. I I have my doubts that the... uh, ultrasonic type thing. They say it can keep deer away in certain instances, but uh, uh, I would think that you probably need to go maybe with more traditional. I don't know how much those things cost, but uh, I would say that in some cases they may work, but probably not in most. All right, uh, Roger, thanks for the phone call. Before we go to the break, Terry, uh, are snakes good uh, mouse hunters? Not bad. <laughs> Most people don't want a snake in their house to get rid of the mice. But as far as those those uh, ultrasonic units go, uh, all the studies I've read is that they're ineffective. The animal alerts to it, and then they ignore it, and they go about their business. Right. All right. Time for the first break of the hour. When we get back, we will begin our discussion with our guest for today, Terry Vandeventer. Mississippi's home to about 40 different species of snakes, and some might even be in your yard. So if you have a snake question or a pet question, don't hesitate to call and join our conversation this morning with that phone call. It's 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back after this. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and our guest today, Terry Vendeventer. He's here to talk about the snakes, the snakes that call Mississippi home. Uh, what snakes might you encounter this time of year? If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment, you can call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one 877 
672-7464 or email animals at mpbonline.org. Terry, thanks for being on the show again with us. You know, we usually have done the show during the summer months or early fall when people might expect to see a snake out on a nature walk or maybe in their backyard. What are snakes of Mississippi doing in this colder time of the year? Well, snakes, even in the deep south, do hibernate. They, they do go down and, you know, go to sleep for the winter. But we do have, you know, Mississippi's a very long state, you know, tall north to south. So way up in the Tennessee hills, they're going to spend a little more time sleeping than they do on the Gulf Coast. But you can find snakes in Mississippi 12 months out of the year. And it's, it's interesting that a caller earlier was talking about bringing their, their uh, plants in for the winter. And the cat was using them for a litter box. Well, on the same note, people bring their plants in and, and often they inadvertently carry in visitors lizards and snakes and things like that so that always uh, is an exciting event this time of year so um generally those are, are perfectly harmless little earth snakes and brown snakes but but nonetheless um they've taken up residence in the outdoor plants and then you bring them in and warm them up and it's a party <laughs> So I think when we think about bears hibernating, you know, we think about a den or something. What about snakes? Do they also seek out some sort of cozy area to hibernate? Yeah, yeah. We often hear about so-called snake dens in Mississippi, and we don't have snake dens in Mississippi. Snake dens are found in the north where multitudes of snakes will gather together at rocky crevices, and they'll they'll move back in those, those uh, fissures, and they'll spend the winter there in great numbers. In Mississippi, snakes hibernate individually. We don't have snake dens. We, we hear about them all the time, but no, we don't have snake dens here. But they'll seek out a place below the frost line, and they may come out and, and bask in the sun on warm days. And actually, uh, Dr. Edwin, Edmund Kaiser up at Old Miss documented uh, cottonmouths at a, at a spring overflow, a pond overflow where the water was coming out, and there were cottonmouths gathered there catching bluegill and little fish that were being washed out of there and there were snow drifts on the ground and snow was falling and these guys are gathered up there eating fish you know in i don't know january february so so uh, um the old, there's an old myth about you know i don't go hunting until the first frost well that that that's that's a myth you know that more <laughs> yeah but they but they do tend to go down and stay down for a while um, so, of the snakes that are active this time of year, which ones might we be finding in our backyards? Uh, water snakes are, are pretty, uh, you know, cold resistant. But um, again, you know, um, we have a a Facebook page on Mississippi snakes, and and you know, people are still posting pictures of snakes. They're posting pictures of rattlesnakes they've seen and chicken snakes that have come up in their yard, and so it really. You know, the, the little guys can warm up faster. So we'll see we'll see little earth snakes and things, garter snakes in our yard. We're going to be visiting with Terry throughout the hour. Got a couple of phone calls on the line to get to. First, we'll go to Gail, who's in Waveland. Good morning, Gail. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, hi. Uh, my husky had an emergency C-section. And a couple of years later, she has developed what they call trachea collapse with a she coughs almost constantly. Um, she's on falsopressants and prednisones. Is there anything that we can do to help her? 
Well, that's a great question, and it's a little unusual for this to happen. Uh, this was after the surgery, C-section? Yes, a couple of years uh, thereafter, yes. Right. And her lungs are clear, you know, she's been x-rayed, and there's not an issue with the lungs. My suggestion on this, and you've tried the different cost suppressants and everything, my suggestion would be to go really to a specialist at Mississippi State or other specialty clinic, have them look at this. There may be some surgery that could be done to uh, either open the trachea up some, which is kind of difficult. I wouldn't want to be trying to do it as a general practitioner, but a specialist might be able to help with that and uh be able to help you. Surgery may not be the answer, but I'd certainly have someone look at it that is more of a specialist than, than a general practitioner. So when she call, uh, sometimes she'll cough up this white thick, I mean really thick, sticky mucus. Uh, I call it mucus, it could be just a secretion. What right. is that? Well, it probably has to do with one, she may not be able to swallow as normal as possible. Could be some uh, paralysis there in the pharynx somewhere, uh, but this is not unusual that she would be coughing up uh, white mucus, uh, especially if she's coughing that much as well. All right, uh, Gail, we appreciate your call. Let's uh, move on the phone lines next. Terry from Tupelo wants to talk snakes. Terry, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi, Terry. This is Terry. Hey, Terry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a question about water moccasins, and I try not to put human behavior on animals, even though sometimes it's hard. I've actually had water moccasins chase me in my boat when I'm fishing. Uh, is it because they're territorial, or what What animal behavior are they exhibiting when they're trying to chase me in the water, you know, when I'm in a boat? Yeah, it, I think it's a definition of, of the word chase, actually. Um, snakes are nearsighted. They don't see at great distances. They don't appreciate mountain vistas or sunsets. But um, they also are in danger any time that they're in open water. There's you know alligators, turtles, bass. There's all kinds of things in open water that will eat a snake in a flash. And they see your boat as simply a log or a snag to get out and, and get out of the water and get up onto to bask in the sun or just simply to escape open water. And um, they're not, there's nothing malicious about it. They're not trying to bite you or, or anything like that. They're just, uh, they just don't understand that you're not a log. <laughs> you're not a floating log or anything like that. That's, that's all that is. It's pretty simple. Well, next time I wear my waders and give them a lift. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Commune with nature. All right. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Terry. So that's interesting. It's really that's an uh, they see a large object and they think, hey, this is my opportunity to go ahead and, and climb on. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really uh, so many observations we make of snakes. If we just stop for a minute and take out the human factor, like he said, and just think, what is he really doing? Well, you, it's, it's pretty easy a lot of times to tell what he's really doing. So, It is fun sometimes, though, to put the human characteristics to animals, although when I do it, you think, well, no, that's not it. But that would be nice if it worked that way. But it <laughs> so uh, you mentioned uh, snakes and lizards getting into the house uh, being the pot hitchhikers, uh, but we also talked about mice earlier, and that might be a way that they're getting near your house. Yeah, well, for sure. If, if, you, don't, um, if you don't keep up with the Joneses, and keep your property clean and manicured, you're going to make a home for rats and mice. 
they're they're going to come in, and uh, you know the the finest mansion is going to have a hole in it somewhere where a mouse or a cockroach or something can get in around pipes and electrical outlets and things like that. Snakes follow the food, and uh, they like you know rats and mice. A lot of them feed on rats and mice, and so they'll they'll go to those places and and they're not there to cause trouble, but they go in following the trail of the mouse and. You know, I never find snakes in my house. Everybody else does, but I never find snakes <laughs> in my house. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we find them in our yard consistently, and they're welcome at our house, of course. But, but um, so do away with shelter uh, piles of tin, uh, board piles, outbuildings. Uh, keep your grass mowed so you can see a snake. You know, I mean, so you can spot him. You'll know he's there, and then. And then he'll go on about his business, and he'll cross the yard, and he'll go over to your neighbor's ratty place and live there. <laughs> so, so yeah, do away with shelter and do away with food, and, and you'll do away with snakes. All right. For the, for the most Terry, part. Terry, this is Troy. I, yeah. I told this story before, but uh, I had a distress call from a friend of mine, and uh, a uh, kingsnake had followed the mouse trail, I'm sure, along a pipe and uh, was wrapped around uh, – ice maker the bottom part of the ice maker and i went over and relieved the snake of his place that he was staying and kept him over the winter and fed him he he actually did eat the uh the mice frozen mice which was good and turned him loose in the spring but uh yes they do follow that scent trail and they're 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 very good at what they do i am very very keen sense of smell that's their their number one leading sense that's what you know their their entire lives are based on chemistry so uh, very good sense of smell this is creature comforts on mpb think radio we've got a caller on the line with a dog question for dr major hi zach you're on the air with us go ahead yeah i have a, a very active uh, dog that is eight years old that needs knee surgery or recently had knee injury and we're, we're weighing the tplo versus tta surgeries and we've seen a couple of uh that's for pre-screening, and I, I guess I don't understand why one prefers the TTA and one would prefer the TPLO. And am I am I crazy signing up a, jo- a dog for knee surgery? You're not crazy. Uh, what kind of dog is this? How heavy? We, we think he's I some kind of Alaskan sled dog, about 43 pounds. Okay, so he's not a huge dog. He's a uh, middle-sized dog. There have been a lot of studies done on uh, ACL-type uh, injuries. Some dogs will repair with cage rest. By repair, they'll become pretty much back to normal. The TPLO probably is the most expensive one of the surgeries. Uh, there are different kinds. Of, if you look online, there's probably about four or five mentioned. Uh, some involve embrocation of the uh, uh joint uh, TPLO actually go in and realign the joint and what happens uh, in ACL tear is that tibia moves forward and you can uh, a sedate dog you can actually feel it move quite freely uh, I would go with someone you trust uh, the the different surgeries apparently uh, have about the same results so I, I would choose uh, based on what you're being told by your veterinarian and go from there. All right, Zach, thanks. I may not have, I may not, I may not have helped you much, but there have been studies that show that uh, cage rest is actually a very 
uh, effective method of uh, helping with the, t the uh, anterior cruciate tear. And most of the vets, when they do surgery, they're going to tell you that you have about a six to eight week recovery period where the dog does need to be restricted after surgery. Yeah, that's that's his. He won't uh, eat or really go to the bathroom unless he gets out and runs for some hot time. So keeping him inactive is one, another one of our concerns. You know, how, how to go? How to go about that? And keep him ha happy yet inactive. Right. And regardless of the surgery, there may be some arthritis later, based on the fact of this joint being injured. So remember that as well. Appreciate the advice. Thank you. Thanks, Zach, for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Uh, before we take our next break, um, you know, Terry, I remember years ago I went to the Snake Day at the uh, Natural uh, Science Museum, and I was impressed by the variety of snakes that we have here in Mississippi. So if you would talk a little bit about that for a few minutes, you know, in different sizes, colorations, those sorts of things. Sure, sure. We have 56, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> we have 56 types of snakes in Mississippi, and uh, they range from the smallest little uh, southeastern crown snake, which I find in my yard, that's five inches long, and the babies are two inches long. They're, they're microscopic almost, up to indigo snakes that were once here that were nine feet long and diamondback rattlesnakes that were over six. So we have a complete range of sizes and shapes. And, and uh, my wife once uh, mentioned that she thought all snakes were, were the same. They just all looked the same, and she real, they're just different colors. But she realized later after meeting me that some have larger heads, fatter bodies, longer tails, skinnier builds, that kind of thing. And so if you were to spray paint a snake snow white, with, I could probably identify it for you, you know, still without, mm -hmm. you know, because they are characteristic. their scales, their body shape and such. So um, we find snakes everywhere. We find them on our barrier islands. We find them in Tishomingo County uh, in the Delta. And... Um, some snakes are disappearing. We're, we're, we've got four endangered species in Mississippi, uh, two of which probably don't live here anymore. They're, they're probably already gone. And um, a lot of that has to do with habitat destruction and uh, road mortality. Lots of snakes get run over, sometimes on purpose, on, on roads. And, and, uh, and then, you know, people kill snakes, too. So that's our job is to try to get people to understand that the snakes are inherently good things. They're not bad things. They're good things. This is Creature Comforts, and it's time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking everything snake with our guest, Terry Vandeventer. Are you thinking about getting a snake as a pet? We'll talk about pros and cons of pet snake ownership after the break. Also, Dr. Major is going to stay with us and is ready to answer your pet questions. So give us a call this morning. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show 
through your favorite podcast app. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and our guest for the hour, Terry Vandeventer. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you miss any of today's show, you always can subscribe to our show using your favorite podcasting app, the podcast of our show, that is. Or if you download the MPB Public Media app, you can listen to all the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. To join our conversation this morning, we've got some open phone lines at one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. Our phone number is one 672 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Looks like we've got another caller on the line, so we say good morning to Craig in Biloxi. Go ahead, Craig. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Uh, I was wondering why the medical symbol has two snakes climbing a stick, if you know the origin of that. Sure, sure. Um that it that is based on a let me see let me get this straight in my mind here um technically originally it was one snake crawling up the up the the staff and over the years it it was changed you know probably for economic reasons you know who knows uh, using it as an emblem but that is the staff of Aesculapius and Aesculapius was the Greek god of of healing of medicine and the uh, um the snake pictured on the staff is is what we now today call the Escalapian rat snake. It's from Europe, and that the snake was thought to have healing powers. And if you look at a range map in Europe of where this snake lives, it'll show a shaded area over much of of uh, the continent there. But then you'll see a lot of little tiny dots all over Europe, little dots here and there showing that there's populations of Escalapian rat snakes. And what happened was the the Romans carried these rat snakes with them as they went out on their their crusades and and such and they would introduce them into public baths and the snakes swam around and the people would bathe in there and it was supposed to have healing properties and they believed this and so so during their their campaigns they carried these snakes all over europe and released them and now we have populations of them scattered everywhere but uh, but that is uh, the the symbol of medicine. The staff of Escalapius uh, is is what we're referring to. All right, uh, Craig. Thanks for the call. Great question, and Terry. That that's a great story that I've never heard before. So mm-hmm. that uh, and 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 also <laughs> uh, how times change. Uh, I can imagine now if someone were taking a bath and you threw a snake in there with them. I don't know that many people would be too happy yeah, about they that. They wouldn't be very healthy, would they? <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, talk a little bit about venomous snakes. Uh, what uh, what types of venomous snakes do we find here in Mississippi? Oh, we have six different kinds of venomous snakes in Mississippi. When I ask people how many snakes, how many venomous snakes do we have, they always say four, and they say rattlesnake, copperhead, cottonmouth, and coral snake. Well, we have three different kinds of rattlesnakes, and those rattlesnakes are almost as different from each other as as uh, they are from any of the other venomous snakes. So, so uh, um, the one of the species of rattlesnakes, uh, the, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake, is the biggest rattlesnake in the world, although we, we don't see big ones anymore. Uh, we hear about them, but we don't see them. And they're found in the piney woods of South Mississippi. They're uh, declining at a, at a, uh, a terrible rate. The uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has declared them as a possible candidate for protection. And then we have timber rattlesnakes that live all over the state and are quite common. They're, uh, at one time, we thought they were declining, but they're not. They're, they're doing very well in Mississippi, although in some regions they've, they've disappeared. Cottonmouths and copperheads, common. 
uh, throughout the state. Uh, copperheads are not on the immediate Gulf Coast. Uh, and then uh, the coral snake. And the coral snake is the one that probably gets the most attention when people start asking questions. And it's a, it's a small, slender snake, red, black, and yellow, uh, related to cobras. Uh, that, that's kind of scary. And, but, uh, yeah, we have, we have about 150 snake bites a year in Mississippi. Nobody dies. We haven't had anybody die in many, many years, decades. And so um, it's um, um, leave them alone. Walk away. Don't try to kill them. That's how people get bit. And just leave them alone. Watch where you put your hands, your feet, your seats. You know, and, and just just give them a little respect and you'll be fine. Uh, so I, I think there are some ways or I don't know if it's an urban myth or not, but there's supposed to be ways that you can tell if a snake is venomous by looking at it. What would be some of those? Well, uh, snakes have certain characteristics, of course, and, and uh, uh, all of our venomous snakes, except the coral snake, have a vertically elliptical pupil, a cat eye, if you will, uh, in contrast to our pupils that are round or a dog's pupil. But you have to cut kind of close. Got to get it. Kind of got to get down in his face to see that. And in low light, uh, it can dilate and appear less uh, slit-like and more rounded, and that could be confusing. Head shape is uh, a myth. You can't tell if a snake is venomous by the shape of his head, contrary to what Great Grandpa said. Um, all snakes. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Uh, many snakes can make their head big and wide and triangular uh, if they're irritated or scared. And so it's not a good way to tell. The best way to, to tell is to learn the colors, of the, learn the patterns, the colors. And, 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 you know, you can look at a bluebird and you can look at a blue jay. And they look totally different. And, and you can look at a, a German shepherd and you can look at a poodle. And they're totally different. But they're still dogs and they're still birds. And it's the same way with snakes. If you want to, if you don't want to go through the trouble I don't consider it trouble at all, but uh, uh, but if you if you don't want to take the time to to learn how to tell the difference, just leave them alone. Just just don't bother them. If you're bitten by a snake, don't kill it and take it to the hospital. That's the last thing they want. And and so uh, anti venom is cross indexed against all of our venomous snakes except the coral snake. And so you don't have to bring the snake with you, and you risk a second bite. And there is that poem about Jack and Yellow and Fellow that I can never remember right. for coral snakes. Right. The, the, the coral snake looks like a candy cane. It's long and slender. It's two to three feet long. And it's um, uh, ringed with red, black, and yellow. And uh, generally, the yellow and the red are side by side in the sequence down the body. So, so we say red touch yellow, kill a fellow. Red touch black, friend of Jack. Now, there are exceptions to that. You run across the occasional sport who doesn't have that color change. You know, it may be a, a solid red coral snake. It may be a, a black coral snake. Those are very rare, but they pop up once in a while. It's a, it's a good, uh, the, the poem works. It's a good poem if you commit it to memory. If you're not willing to commit it to memory, you know, red touch yellow, green jello, you know, that's not going to work. And, uh, and people who are bitten by coral snakes across the board pick up the snake knowing what it is and thinking that it can't hurt them. Saying, this is a deadly coral snake. I'm going to pick it up in my hands and it can't bite me because it has a little bitty mouth and it doesn't have any fangs and it has to chew on me and all these myths that are guaranteed to get you dead. So um, people pick them up and that's how they get bit. Don't pick up snakes. All right. <clears throat> this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Back to the phone lines we go. First, our friend TJ from Kosciuszko has a story for us. Go ahead, TJ. 
Yeah, years ago, uh, I ran a factory in Canton, Mississippi, and the owner of the factory came in one morning, and he had the funniest story. He said his wife and he were in the den watching TV late one night, and uh, 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 this horrible, horrible commotion. Uh, horrible commotion came out of their fireplace. And he said the lights were down low, and we were watching TV, and uh, something came out of that fireplace, and his wife screamed, Monkey! (laughs) (laughs) And he he said he dove off the back of the couch and managed to get over to the light and turned it on, and it was a big old owl. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they called the state, and the state came out and got the owl. That's just that's the funniest critter story I ever. He said, Miss Francis screamed, Monkey! It's almost a Christmas story. Did he have a big, to- big bag of toys? Yeah. I love your show. All right, TJ, thanks for the call. Uh, let's stay on the phone lines. It's Rachel in Eupora is up next. Go ahead, Rachel. So I have a story to share about today. My daughter uh, tells of the time she was at a zoo, and uh, she was in the reptile building, and there were two snakes in their enclosure, and they were trying to open the door of the enclosure and escape. They would crawl along a ledge that led up uh, above the door handle, and uh, and this was a straight handle, and uh, they would drop themselves onto the handle to try to make it move, and they did this over and over, and my daughter said that it made her realize that snakes uh, have feelings, too. They wanted to escape. They wanted to be in their natural habitat. Right. Well, snakes are escape artists, for sure, and... Uh even snakes born in captivity um, will all of their lives look for a way out of their enclosure, no, how matter, no matter how big their enclosure is. So many of us like to give them some sort of enrichment, uh, leaves and rocks and branches and things like that to, to try to make them happy, if you will. But um, snakes are, are not dumb. You know, we we often think of them as something that just kind of blunders through the woods by instinct. And that's not the case at all. They learn. They uh, engage in all kinds of uh, interesting cognitive behaviors. And uh, so uh, uh, I I found when I was uh, in charge of the, the reptile division at the Jackson Zoo that snakes behind the scenes off display were in cages with newspaper and a water bowl and a little plastic hiding box to climb in and sleep. And they were bored. They did nothing whatsoever. But the snakes on display, I would put, you know, fresh oak leaves and and cypress stumps in there. And they were much more responsive, much more active. And I like to think, hopefully, they were more content. So, all right, Rachel. Fascinating. I love I love snakes, and I love this program. Thank you. Wonderful. 
Thanks, Rachel. Always good to hear from you during Creature Comforts. It is time for the last break for this hour. Uh, we've been talking about the different snake species and how to spot venomous snakes and where they can be found this time of year. There's still time to get your question in, though. Our guest today is herpetologist Terry Vendeventer, and Dr. Major still on the line, ready for pet questions. Give us a call if you'd like to at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can always email the show at animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap things up after this. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and our guest for today, Terry Vendeventer. We've been talking about snakes throughout the hour and got some phone calls that we'll wrap up the show with. But, but before we do that, uh, Terry, kind of following up on what we were talking about before the last break, and you were mentioning how, uh, like probably a lot of creatures, snakes don't like to be cooped up. They're always trying to find a way out to, to escape no matter how large uh, an enclosure they might be in. So how about... Pets as snakes, do you think they make a good pet? And if so, um, what would be some tips for someone who is going to get a pet snake? Well, obviously, I, I think snakes make great pets. <laughs> but um, they're not furry and warm, and they don't um, fetch your slippers, and they don't snuggle with you, and they don't love you. Contrary to what people think, your snake doesn't love you, but he's, he's used to you, and he's accepting of you, and you feed him and take care of him. And I, I think they're fine, especially for children who want to commune with nature, but they have allergies, fur and feather, and you know, fur and feathers. And, and, you know, you don't have to feed your snake every day. You can go to the Grand Canyon and come home, and he's just as happy to see you. And so, uh, um, and, and the contentment part of it, that's, we, we have to think of that in human terms. And, and I really don't know if they're content or not. I have animals that are 40 years old, and they feed, they reproduce, they are healthy, and, you know, so until we know more. <laughs> um, but would you suggest uh, giving them something in their, their yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. kind of maybe hope give, they're not bored or something? Yeah, give them some enrichment. You know, uh, put bedding in the cage, put branches and, and, and leaves and things that will uh, stimulate them. And change those out periodically. You know, new smells and and things to crawl over and and things like that yeah yeah give them enrichment I, i'm a big i'm a firm believer in that all right let's wrap up the show with some phone calls we'll start uh, first with uh, bill in greenwood good morning bill you're on the air with us go ahead all right yeah uh, i've got a question and a comment let me say first uh, same thing happened to me uh with my family it wasn't an owl but it was a Mount, gigantic mallard duck in the uh, <laughs> in the uh, fireplace, and uh, we got two dogs, and they were chasing him. He came through, and the dogs were chasing him everywhere. And finally, my mom opened up the front door, and it went out. <laughs> but but I got a question. Uh, I heard a cicada the other day when it was real warm, by December the first. Is that not unusual? I thought they were all dead by now. Do you know anything about what? that? Cicadas. There's, there's still yeah. some, yeah. There's still some out, yeah. You know, not in not in force, uh, I don't think. Uh, but but yeah, I'm I'm hearing them, you know, out from the woods where I live, you know. So and and copperheads like those, they, they eat a lot of those. And there's been a big fuss about uh, copperheads gathering around crepe myrtle trees and things to in, in numbers, you know, to eat cicadas. And they've been doing that for millennia. But uh, but with the internet and such, we 
you know, more people are aware of it and they, they get a little excited about that. But it's been a, but cicadas uh, are, have been known for years and years to be like gummy drops, you know, to, to <laughs> copperheads. They love them. All right, uh, Bill, good to hear from you this morning. I would imagine that, you know, with that emergence or whatever, a snake's at the proper place and to see all that, you oh. know, good food, oh, that, yeah. they must go nuts. <laughs> oh, there, are, there are cases where they gather, you know, 10 or 20 at the base of a tree uh, <laughs> waiting for these things to come up, and they, they just gobble them up. So. <laughs> oh, it's a buffet time for the it snakes. Is, yeah. Let's uh, move on. Uh, next, we're going to talk to uh, Eric, who's called in from Sardis. You're on the air with us, Eric. Go ahead. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. Calling, I do a lot of fishing, uh, private lakes and things like that. And um, I was wondering, I've, I've heard it, I don't know if it's true or not, do snakes give off a certain smell if you're getting close or, or you know, in that territory? So, uh, which ones do, do uh, give off a smell? Yeah, m- most snakes give off a smell if they are uh, directly confronted. If you try to kill one or catch one or pick it up and you frighten it, they will release a smell in the same manner as a skunk. A skunk doesn't let his smell out willy-nilly. You know, he only lets it out when, you know, he's in danger. And snakes are the same way. Many people claim that they can smell snakes in the woods, that they could be walking along and smell. No, they can't. Uh, that's, that's a myth. Snakes, the only way you would smell a snake in the woods is if you came up on a situation immediately after a snake had been attacked by a predator and the snake had released that musk. Then you might smell it, but walking through the woods, you you don't smell snakes. That they they don't have a snake has no smell at all unless you you frighten him and he releases that musk. Uh, so, uh, but but yeah, they you know if you try to hurt one, you hit him with a stick, you might be sorry when he sprays you in the face. Yeah, I was right, I, I heard that once before. Like they could walk through the woods and smell it, but I'm going nah. to keep clearing that up for me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks, Eric, for your call. Let's uh, end things. Uh, Mikey is in Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. You're on the air with us. Yes, sir. I'll be quick. Um, first of all, uh, Professor Gershon, forgive me, but I know you have a great sense of humor, and I just have to comment that the only snakes that scare me are the ones who are politicians. <laughs> oh, no. oh that's a, that is an insult to snakes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, yes. Um, uh, but, uh, no, I have a, also a comment that may help somebody. Uh, the, the person that was asking, it's worked for me, the tip about bringing your plants inside and your cats, using it for a litter box. Right. Put pine cones. Pine cones. They don't like to mess up those precious paws, you know, <laughs> trying to do it. It works even outside. So, um, yeah, inside, it was the only thing that worked for my very determined and uh, poor kitty. She's passed on. Happy kitty now. Um, uh, very old. And, uh, yeah, we, we argued about it for a while, and I lost until I put the pine cones there. Okay. <laughs> Great suggestion, Mikey. That uh, you know, that's a lot of things. If you're trying to keep your cat off an area you don't want him to, uh, make it uncomfortable or unpleasant for him to be around. I've heard that uh, tinfoil does the same thing. They don't like the way it feels on their paws. Uh, so if there's a cat jumping up on a counter or something, you might try that. Or as uh, Mikey suggests, if you're bringing your plants in, put some pine cones in there. It will look nice and also might uh, deter the cat from uh, using it as a litter box. Uh, Terry, before we go, uh, we mentioned during the break uh, that you are part of a Facebook group about snakes. If you would, tell us that and a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a it's a very popular group. It's, it's called um, Mississippi Snake Identification and Forums. So not only do we identify the picture of the snake you send in, but, but we discuss it. We talk about it. We answer questions and things. And I can't keep track. Uh, last count, oh, gosh, I don't know, 
30 or 40,000 members. Wow. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and every day we have scores of people, you know, requesting to become members, you know, get on to it so that they because they have to register to get on. But we have, uh, you know, people send in the picture of the snake they found in their flower pot or they find the, the picture of the snake they saw sometimes run over in the road or something like that. You know, they'll want to know what it is. And, and uh, we're happy to do it. And we talk about uh, local common names, uh, you know, uh, um, a rose by any name. You know, a cotton mouth <laughs> is, a, you know, is, a, is called many different names in Mississippi. So we, we clear that up. It's, it's a good site. All right. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major and our guest, Terry Vandeventer, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. 